We're continuing our series of studies from the book of Psalms that we're calling Psalms for a Supernatural Living. We've studied a variety of different Psalms, starting with Psalm 103, where David said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. And, and we moved on from there to Psalm 16, and we, we talked about Psalm 51, and we juxtaposed that Psalm against David's sin with Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah the Hittite. And we've studied several Psalms. The psalm we're going to look at tonight, it's a, it's a little bit like last week's psalm in that it is one of the least read, one of the least studied, one of the least memorized, one of the least enjoyed and treasured of all the psalms. It's a psalm that, that really stinks in the nostrils of the world. The, the world hates Psalm 14 that we're going to be looking at tonight. It, psalm 14 is, is not quoted by the bedsides of children. Psalm 14 is not memorized in vacation Bible schools across the land. Psalm 14 is really a hard word from God. Ne nevertheless, it is a message that is so important and, and God so wants us to get it that He actually repeats it because Psalm 53 is almost a verbatim reiteration of Psalm 14. So turn to Psalm 14 first. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are, are any who understand, who seek God. They all turn aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who, who does good, not even one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat my people as they eat bread, but do not call on the Lord? There they were in great fear, for the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is in his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come from Zion. When the Lord turns back the cap captivity of his people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Now, if you just keep your finger there and flip over to Psalm 53, uh, it's almost identical, but you'll notice that the major differences occur in verse 5 of Psalm 53. But apart from that, it's almost identical word, uh, word for word. Read it, read it together with me, Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done uh, abhorrent injustice. There is none who does good. God looked down from heaven on the children of men to see if there were any who have insight who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They are altogether corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on God? There they were in fear, where there was nothing to fear. For God has scattered the bones of him who camps against you. You have put them to shame because God has rejected them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God brings back the captiv captivity of His people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. We're going to stay in Psalm 14 and, and Psalm 53 uh, for most of the, tonight, uh, this, the study tonight, but keep your finger there, mark it in some way. But I also want you to see the, the New Testament reiteration. Let's turn to the book of Romans because I, th I think you'll be struck with the similarities between Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and Romans chapter 1. We're, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth through unrighteousness. For what may be known about God is clear to them since God has shown it to them. The invisible things about Him, His eternal power and, de and deity, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world and are understood by the things that are made so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him or give thanks to Him as God, but became futile in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed four beasts, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness, through the lust of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies among themselves, they turned the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, that rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We tremble before this psalm, knowing that your eyes are on all the earth and that you know us even better than we know ourselves. Lord, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would come and commune with us deep within our hearts, Lord God. And I thank you and praise you, God, that you can reveal to us things that are deep and, and things that are hidden, that you will reveal those things to us out of your word. Lord, I, I know that I can't teach these psalms the way they ought to be taught, but, but, but Lord, with the anointing that comes from your spirit, I know that, that right now you want to communicate with any heart that is open, uh, that you want to talk to us and deal with us deep within. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to do that. And Lord, we're not asking for intellectual knowledge about these psalms, but God, I'm believing that uh, you, would, you would imprint on our spirits those things which would be profitable for our souls. And I thank you for it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let me give you some general preparation for the Psalms here, and then we'll get into the meat of the content. If you'll look at Psalm 14, you'll see that it begins, for the music director, uh, a Psalm of David, or, or another translation, it might say something like, for the chief musician, a Psalm of David. And what that means is that it was not a private Psalm. This was not a Psalm uh, from, from, of, of David's own heart. The, he, he wrote it, then he sent it to the musician. He intended it for, for it to be sung by all the musicians. He intended it for it to, for it to be learned and, and sung and, and taught by the congregation of the entire people of Israel at large. It was a public psalm. Then if you look at Psalm 53 subtitle, it says, For the music director, according to Mahalath, a contemplative masculine of, of David. Now, we talked a little bit about masculines uh, last week. Maybe you'll remember that, but uh, we, we, we learned that a masculine is a psalm of instruction, a psalm of, of teaching. And, and that means, therefore, that, that there is something important uh, about both what we sing and, and how we sing it. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, uh, but I do want to just touch uh, on this subject in passing this, this evening. See, see there, there is a, uh, a great emphasis on worship right now, especially in the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. And, and that's great. That's wonderful. However, one of the problems with any great emphasis throughout the, uh, at any given moment throughout church history is, is that an emphasis can become an overemphasis uh, and then that emphasis can then uh, begin to run off the track. You see, if Satan can stop the will of God, he will stop it. But if he sees that he cannot stop it, then he'll, he'll get behind it and he'll push it. And he gets it going faster and faster and faster until he can get it to where it can jump the track. And you say, well, how can we have an overemphasis on worship? Well, let me give you this example. Uh, I heard a teaching a number of years ago, uh, sometime back, that, and they said that worship ought not ever teach anything. However, the, the, the problem with that is that it conflicts with a great deal of, of uh, the traditional hymns. Therefore, a lot of people who buy into that kind of teaching and say it should always be uh, uh, all about uh, sung, songs being sung directly to God, there should not be any teaching to any people involved, uh, uh, those people then don't like these traditional hymns. And so, and so hymns like, like uh, a mighty fortress is our God. I love that, the words of that. A mighty fortress is our God, a, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of, uh, of mortal ills prevailing. You see, that, that hymn is not directed to God. That is an instructional hymn. It's a masculine. It, it is instruction. Now, a more modern example of this might be, uh, uh, for example, a song that we sing here at Restoration Life Church from time to time. It's a song called The Lion and the Lamb. And it says, our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles, and every knee will bow before him. Now, see, that is not a song that's addressing God directly. That's instructional. That's teaching us about who he is and what he's like. And it's perfectly appropriate to sing uh, words of, of mutual encouragement to one another. It, it may not be 
worship in the in really in the purest sense of the word but it is appropriate in the context of worship to sing to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs speaking to one another and encouraging one another in the spirit of god it's it's perfectly okay to to teach something in worship it's perfectly fine to exhort one another you know there, there are songs that call upon one another you know one of the great songs uh, that, that that we've sung over the years is the song shout to the lord that song says shout to the lord all the earth let us sing power and majesty praise to the king now that is not a song that's being sung to god it's not a hymn of praise as much as it is as it is a summons to the people of god to come and worship him this psalm then is a hymn of instruction that calls upon the people to reiterate a theological truth that, that is so unpleasant and, uh, to, to the carnal mind that God actually speaks it twice in the book of Psalms. He intends us to get it, not to avoid it. Now, th there's another word in Psalm 53 where it says, according to Mahalath. Now, you see that? Mahalath. Mahalath, what is that? Well, uh, we think... The nearest we can tell is it is a musical term that actually means sadness. It, it implies sadness. So it, this is a sad song because it deals with the, the corporate disease of man. Now, I know that's not very exciting to many of you, but I wanted to get that out there uh, and help you get, have that as a foundation. So let's, let's look into the actual songs. What we're what we're dealing with here is a teaching about something that is not only, not only does the contemporary world not like it, but there are huge elements of the contemporary church that don't like it as well. Yet it still remains a, a bedrock doctrine of the Bible, and it is the doctrine of the depravity of man. You know, contemporary humanism teaches us that man is basically good, and it is his surroundings, his context, his, his experiences, his upbringing, or whatever it is that, that, that ruins him. It's a belief that, that a person is a blank slate, and it's his or her parents, or his or her guardians, or, the, or it's the constructs of society, or the generation in which he or, he or she was born. That, that it's those things that writes bad things on that slate until it turns him or her bad. You know, that, this is the idea that gives us, you, you may have heard somebody say, there's no such thing as a, as a bad child. Well, well, that comes, first of all, that comes from a person with no children. I believe that with all my heart. Uh, but I can tell you this personally, I proved that to be wrong many, many times in my, in my own life, in my own childhood. You see, that's, that's really all a kind of emotional, romanticized nonsense that has no bearing on Scripture. Uh, see, here, here's what I mean. Children, they don't have to learn how to be selfish. That comes naturally to them. There's no parent that's going around teaching their toddler. Now, when another child picks up this toy, I want you to immediately grab it and say, mine, 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 mine. No, no, no. That, is, that, is, that comes naturally to them. You know, it's, it, children don't have to learn to resort to violence to get their way. You know, when it, the same situation, when another child picks up the toy and they won't give it to him and, and they bite them up, uh, uh, you know, parents don't teach that. They don't say, now this is what you should do. I can, I guarantee they didn't learn in my household. Uh, you know, uh, I like to, I'm a normal guy. I, I like to have the remote and that sort of thing. But, but when uh, my wife has the remote and I say, could you hand me the remote? If, if she says, no, I, I don't want to give you the remote. <laughs> I don't reach over and bite her. My kids didn't learn that from me. That, that comes naturally to them. You know, the, the book of Proverbs says that sin is bound up in the heart of a child. We are born in sin. David said in Psalm 51, we looked at it just a few weeks ago. He said, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Now, David is not casting aspersions on his mother nor on her morals. What he is saying is, my mother, as wonderful as she was, carried within her the seed of Abraham. Therefore, the infected race of humankind is diseased with a corporate death, sin itself. And man has gone awry. Man 
apart from the saving, sanctifying, restraining, healing, delivering, empowering grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit is evil. Humanism, however, continues to pound the old argument. If we can just educate man, then he'll be good. The problem is that that most of the, uh, some of the most educated people in the world are also the most immoral, wicked, vicious, selfish, self-centered, despicable creatures to to walk the face of the earth. No, education won't do it. They say, well, we just got to get our technology up to par, that if we only get our technology high enough. But the problem is that the technocracy that invented some of the greatest things of the world, you know, learned how to split the atom, is also the technocracy that learned how to burn bodies in a gas chamber in Germany. No, no, technology won't do it. See, this is really the epitome of sin. For humankind to say, I don't need God. You know, the great hymn of humanism is the poem, you've probably heard it, I am the captain of my fate. I am the the master of my soul. Remember that? This is the, the hymn of humanism. The problem with it is that it denies the reality that, that if I am the captain of my soul apart from God, I have a soul that is in hell and a captain that is from hell. It denies the reality of the fact that apart from God, I have no good thing in me. Now listen, this is a hard teaching and the world doesn't like it. And as I said, a great deal of the church doesn't even like it. But let's, let's get into these Psalms. Let's, let's look at Psalm 53. David begins by saying, the, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, foolishness in the scripture, the idea of the fool, uh, the idea of foolishness is actually used in scripture in both positive ways and in negative ways. It's sort of a strange anomaly. What what the world calls good, God calls foolishness or sin. And and what what God calls righteousness, the world calls foolishness. And we're also told about God's foolishness. And he says that God's foolishness is, is wiser than man's wisdom. Well, let me give you an example. God says that, that he will save the lost through the foolishness of preaching. Now, in, in any intellectual way, preaching is foolishness. Think about this. Here's this guy over here, and he prays, and he claims to have heard from the transcendent God, studying a book, uh, uh, looking at a, a piece of paper that's printed out, and, and he formulates, as he studies this, he formulates these electrical impulses in his brain that then shapes into mental images which are then transferred into verbal utterances that pass through the air as sound waves. And these sound waves, they, they, they pass through the air and they, and they land on the ear of another guy sitting over there who, who knows nothing about God and, and, and nothing about men and, and nothing about any of, of sin and, and he cares about none of it. And these sounds penetrate the, the, his ear and they, they, they touch tiny little bones that vibrate inside of his ear, and the, which in turn sends electrical impulses into his brain, which are then translated into mental images that he translates as concepts as, and thoughts. And he responds to those thoughts and faith begins to arise in his heart and he believes and is translated from death unto life and becomes a child of God just like that. Now tell me that makes sense. There's nothing about that that makes sense. That's foolishness. What a strange way for the gospel to be carried. Yet God said, this is is how I'm going to do it. And he says, this is my foolishness, but my foolishness is greater than your wisdom. That's the foolishness of God. That's the mystery of the communicated word. That's the, that's the power of the preached word, which is, in any carnal sense, foolishness. There's, there's no way of explaining it that makes sense to anybody. That's the foolishness of God. However, the foolishness of the world that thinks it is so wide, wise in its own endeavors says there is no God. You know, whenever you hear someone claim to be an atheist, remember that there are, there are two types of atheists. First of all, there are the a kind of lip service atheists. 
You, you may have heard of people saying that there are lip service Christians, that they only, they only serve Jesus, they're only Christian by what they say. Well, they're also, I believe, lip service atheists. And they're not really atheists at all. They're, they are really just frightened, you know, hurt, wounded people that are probably angry at God. So they're, so they're going to get back at God by denying his existence. They, they actually may believe in God, not, not, not belief unto salvation, but they may believe in God even more than most of the people who claim to believe in God because at least they believe in God enough to be angry with him. I remember one time uh, in a conversation I was having with someone who said he was an atheist and he was going on just railing, just ranting and raving about God, just the anger was palpable. And I remember asking him, and I, say, and I said, you know, it's amazing to me that you're so angry with someone that you say doesn't exist. He actually kind of brushed me off when he was done with the conversation at that point in time. You know, but there are a great many people who have been hurt by a preacher. They've been hurt by their wife that said they were a Christian. They've been hurt by their husband who, who, who said they were a Christian. Or maybe, maybe by a parent who claimed to be a Christian. Or they were hurt by somebody else in the church. And they reason in their heart. They say, if God had been a better God, then he would not have let this happen to me. So they then deny the existence of God in the same way as somebody that's angry with their, with their father might change their name in, in order to hurt their father. They, so they say, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a believer. There is no God. You're not up there. I don't believe in you because I'm angry with you. You, you see what I'm saying? Nevertheless, God is in that situation looking down from heaven saying, I, I love you, child. I know. I understand. I love you, and I, I'm going to keep working on you. I, I'm going to have patience in, with you. Well, that type of atheist exists, but that is not what this psalm is speaking about. This psalm is about a deliberate, willful, intentional atheist, not a lip service atheist. No, notice what he said. It says the, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In his heart of hearts, deep in his conscious will, the fool has said in his heart of hearts, there is no God. David is saying that the deliberate atheist of choice from his heart is a moral and theological fool. Now, that, that, that's hard for us to, to gather and understand what that mean, means, but a fool is just someone who just doesn't know, who, who just can't get it. They're, 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 they're filled with that foolishness. Now, it's difficult to tell which comes first, the chicken or the egg kind of situation, but here's the thing. Morals and theology are inextricably linked. They are inextricably connected. Either your theology will change the way that you live, or the way that you live will change your theology sooner or later. You know, whenever you hear error, false teaching, you know, compromise, uh, beginning to, to creep into the teaching of somebody, you, you, you can say to yourself in that moment when you hear that, you can say either that teaching is the result of sin or it is the preparation for sin. That teacher is either justifying uh, deep in his heart what, what, he's a, what he's about to do, what he's going to do, or he's justifying what he has already done. Are, are you with me? You know, I had one fellow talking about theology. He came up to me one time after a sermon and he, he looked at me and he was just kind of disgusted. And he just, he said, when are you going to quit preaching theology? And my answer was, well, brother, if I don't preach theology, if I don't, if I don't preach doctrine, what am I going to preach? What else is there? You see, theology is important because if theology is wrong, then it leads us into all kinds of error and all kinds of sin. If we don't preach doctrine, then we, we wind up with nothing uh, left behind. That, that's, that's the kind of empty-headed nonsense that's, that's led us to appropriate and accept every insane error, every ridiculous false teaching that has come down the pipe for the last 20 years. Sound doctrine is actually what Scripture says to preach. Paul enjoins Timothy. He says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching, that sound doctrine that you have heard from me in the faith and love that, that are in Christ Jesus. 
Listen, if you don't preach sound doctrine, then what's going to happen is you're going to preach unsound doctrine. You see? I mean, you, you do see this, don't you? Sound doctrine, we, we have this idea sometimes in Pentecostal circles that if we preach sound doctrine, if we preach theology, that somehow that's the, the opponent, that's the enemy of liberty, liberty in the spirit. But, but sound doctrine is not the opposite of liberty in the spirit. Sound doctrine is the opposite of unsound doctrine. You know, I hear people say all the time, well, I'm no, theo, no theologian. I'm no theologian. Well, truthfully, when people say that, it usually just means they're a bad theologian. Uh, but everybody is a theologian. Even an atheist is a, theo a theologian because your theology is simply what you believe to be true about God. That's what your theology is, simply what you believe to be true about God. So if you believe there is no God then that changes not only the way that you think, but it changes the way that you live. If there is no God, there is no ultimate law. If there's no ultimate law, there is no order. If there is no order, then there is no restraint. Where there is no restraint, there is no limit to passion. Therefore, atheism, governmental, political, personal, uh, individual, or creedal atheism is, is satanic in the, in the uttermost. It is the zenith of satanic evil. See, atheism is Satan's religion. You know, Satan does not care whether you worship him. He'll take it if he can get it now, but Satan does not care whether you worship him. He only cares whether you worship God. Satan does not care if you obey him. Satan has no will for your life. He only wants you to do your will for your life. Satan doesn't necessarily want you to have his religion. He doesn't want to turn you into a witch or something like that. That's not a, Now, if he, if he can get that, he'll take that. But that's not his primary plan. His plan is for you to have no religion at all. He simply wants you to proclaim or to at least live as if there is no God. Because if there is no God, there is no law. If there is no law, there is no order. If there's no order, then there, there, there is no restraint. If there is no restraint, then there is no limit to passion. And if there is no limit to passion, then Satan has you in bondage. See, Satan's great will and desire was to kill God. The entire revolution in heaven was what? Satan wanted to be God, and when he couldn't be God, then he said, I want to try to kill God. Therefore, to inspire the denial of God intellectually or emotionally is, in a sense, to kill God. If I can kill him in my mind, then I am in line with consummate satanic evil. That's the reason why Tyrannical governments always, even if they don't start that way, they always finally lead toward either idolatry or atheism. Because the state in those situations, the state wants to be God. The state wants to be the ultimate authority. The state, the state wants your ultimate loyalty. Uh, but, but if God is God, then the state can be no better than second place and Satan is not going to settle for second place. He can't stand that. Therefore, the, the atheist is a fool in the sense that he is without the capacity to choose correctly because the correct choice is in and of God. And if God does not exist, if I have killed him in my mind, then I cannot choose him and he is goodness. That doesn't mean that an atheist will never do the right thing. It means that he will never do the right thing rightly. It means that he is incapable of true good because all goodness is of God. Now, he may do good things, but he cannot do it with the, in the right way, in a way that honors the God who is the ultimate goodness. Let, let me just deal with one other aspect of atheism. Now, there are two kinds of idolatry. There, one, one is to worship someone or to worship something other than God. For example, if you ever travel to India, you, you'll be shocked by the climate of polytheism and atheism. I don't know if you know this, but Hindus believe in somewhere in the neighborhood of 33 million gods. 
everything is worshipped. You know, in fact, I heard about a story of a, of a government in a particular city in India. They built a playground for children in that city, and, and they put in that playground a number of different items, you know, slides and teeter-totters, seesaws, whatever you call them, and different toys. And on these toys, they had different animal character heads. So that'd be like Donald Duck or something where they would sit on there and they would grab Donald Duck's ears and that'd be the handle that they'd play on. And so they had all these different animal figure heads on these toys. And what was, began happening was that the people of the city would come out at night and they would put garlands of flowers around them and they would burn incense to playground toys. Now that's grievous and, and obvious idolatry but it doesn't really touch the American conscience, does it? It's not something that we really relate to. But there's another kind of idolatry that is not to worship someone or something other than God, but it is to worship God as something or someone other than He is. If, in other words, if God is not what I want him to be, then I will just reshape him after my image. I will just say, that's not my God. I've heard many, many people say that in today's world where, where, where you begin to mention biblical theology and they say, well, that's not my God. Well, they have reshaped God because they didn't like the way God uh, portrayed himself. They don't like that image. They don't like that picture. So they reshape him after their own image. And, and if he still won't behave, then I'll kill him. He's just, I'll just say there is no God. And, and that's where the great American atheists came from. Now, now listen, uh, an atheist will almost never argue with you about the goodness of God or the love of God or about the mercy of God or the compassion of God or the forgiveness of God or the grace of God. That, that's not usually where they will argue. It is the law that is the problem because it opposes the great American idol of self. See, and you remember, may, you, you may be old enough to remember, many of you are not old enough to remember, but you may remember a commercial that was on years and years ago, back in the 60s. It was a commercial for Anison. Now, I want you to, I'm going to show it to you, and the quality isn't very good because it is footage from uh, 60s, 1960s television, but I want you to watch at least a little bit of this. Don't you think it needs a little salt? Mother, please. I'd rather do it myself. Control yourself. Sure, you have a headache, you're tense, irritable. But don't take it out on her. You need Anison for fast relief. The big... You know, there has hardly been an ad that ever that has resonated so deeply with the American conscience, conscience like that ad. America loved that ad. The, the advertising weekly says that it was, it was one of the most successful advertising campaigns ever designed. Why is that? It's because it tapped right into the rebellious heart of, of a generation that said, don't tell me how to do it. You know, we raised a generation that fed itself on rebellion and therefore eventually said, the law does not tell me what is right and what is wrong. The school does not tell me uh, how to learn. The society does not tell me how to dress. And, and the one last restraint against me is God himself. And having reached the, the, the zenith of corporate and national and political atheism, claiming the, the liberation of the human soul from the bondage of old fuddy-duddy pilgrim religion, now American society has begun to cascade over the other side, having reached the peak of corporate and, and, and national atheism. Listen, if you think we live in a Christian nation, you're wrong. You're wrong. We now live in a nation, even though we have it stamped on our coins, in God we trust, we live in a nation that is functionally atheist. Therefore, we're beginning to see the downward cascade on the other side of the mountain. You see, the, the natural, inescapable, immutable result of atheism is always moral disaster. If there is no God, there is no law, and there's no basis to make any kind of law or any kind of moral statement. 
You know, in, in Pentecostal and charismatic churches, churches all over the land, we have learned to identify and, and we've learned to really hate a religious spirit. But you know, there is only one thing worse. That is an irreligious spirit. Let me just talk about uh, one more aspect of this, and that is this. I want to talk about the Christian that is actually a functional atheist. I know that doesn't seem to make sense, but let me give you an example uh, that shows the, 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 the difference between, between functional atheism and function, functional Christianity. It was a number of years ago, Dr. Mark Rutland received two pieces of mail on the same day. One was a a package, it was a little box, and inside the box he, he opened it up and it was a beautiful sport coat that just fit him perfectly. It had no return address on it, had no name on it, just had a little little card in it that just simply said, from a brother who cares. That's all, that's all it said. That's all he had. Well, he, he wanted to find out who it was, and so he, he contacted the parcel service who delivered it, and they couldn't help him. He, he even contacted the store uh, from, from which the coat had been had been purchased, and, and he talked with the salesman there, and the salesman said, he said, the man who bought this for you told me that you would call, and he threatened me if I told you who he was. He said, I cannot reveal to you who purchased this garment for you. Now, now here is a man who intends for his good to be private. He did everything possible to make sure that his good deed remained just simply between him and God. He believed that God had seen him. He believed deeply, fundamentally, at, at the core of his being that God saw him. He, and he relied on that one thing. He, he, he did not say, I believe that God sees it and I believe that my reward is over there, but I want a little bit of reward now. I want a little recognition now. He just simply said, God saw it and he will take care of it. Well, Dr. Rutland put that box down, picked up the envelope that was next on the stack, and he opened it up, and, uh, and in that envelope he found someone had taken uh, the newsletter from the ministry, which he was president of at the time, and they had sent it back and cut it into different pieces. They had marked it all up with red in different places, criticizing what he'd said, and, and uh, on the back of it they'd written all kinds of terrible things about Dr. Rutland, uh, just saying things like, oh, you're just, you're just straight out of the pit of hell. Just horrible, horrible things. They just, they just, just unleashed both barrels on Dr. Rutland. And at the bottom of it all, the person who sent it wrote this. They said, from an unsigned enemy. So there was one package with a gift that was unsigned. And then there was this letter that just blasted Dr. Rutland that was also unsigned. Now... Both of these people ha have done exactly the same thing while believing exactly the opposite. You see, both, had, both of them had hidden their deed from Dr. Rutland's eyes. One did it because he believed that God would see it, and the other because he believed that God would not see it. See, the, the functional atheist says, if no man sees it, then I am undetected. In other words, secret sin is functional atheism. Are you with me? I know this seems a, a bit cerebral, but stay with me. The, the man that, that puts his hands up in church and prays in tongues and worships God and, and teaches in, in a Sunday school class and he comes to Bible study and he pays his tithes, but sins and he covers that sin and never really uh, uh, deals with that sin. And then he says to himself, I have hidden it from the eyes of the Lord. That man is a functional atheist. He has said in his heart, there is no God to see it. If God saw it, then I know that I broke God's law. If I know that I broke God's law, then I am constrained by that. If I am constrained, then it brings order my, to my life. If it brings order into my life, then I'm subject to God's, God's lordship. Therefore, this man did not do any of those things. Therefore, this man has slain God in his heart. He has taken action with the belief that there will be no consequences because God must not be there to see it. See, the fool, the, the absolute unmitigated fool that says there is a God with his lips and the, then denies that there is a God with his heart, 
that man would be better off if he, if he did it the other way around. I mean, wouldn't it be better if for your whole life you said there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, and then on your deathbed, deep in your heart, just as you're closing your eyes at the end of your life, you said, there is a God, I plead the blood of Jesus. Isn't that better? It is, it is. What if you stand up in a church and you stand up your whole life in church and you say, there is a God. I believe there is a God. I believe there is a God. And then you're carrying on in secret sin. And then on your deathbed, your pastor is there and he leans over and he says, is, is everything right between you and God? Do you believe in God? And you say, yes, I believe in God. And then you died with unrepentant sin in your heart. That man is a fool. Therefore, you see, you see the truth is, Functional atheism is really more frightening than open atheism. Let's move on really quickly here. The second thing he deals with in this, uh, beyond the idea of the concept of functional atheism and its implication on on morality, look at verse 2. God looked down from heaven on the children of men to see if there were any who have insight who seek God. Look look at verse 3. Every one of them has turned aside They are altogether corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Listen, until we can say this to ourselves, about ourselves, then we cannot believe that we have any need of grace. And this is the hardest thing to get across to nice, decent, perfumed, clean-shaven American Christians. Uh, listen, I have preached and sung both. I have had services in, in multiple prisons across the land. But here's what I can tell you. that uh, uh, Did you know that, that I have never, ever in my life preached in a, in a prison uh, where there wasn't at least one person who responded to an altar call and gave their life to Jesus? Y- you know why? You know why it is? It's because w- when that man gets up in the morning and he... And he Pull, pulls his pants on and, and, and the, then the stripe down the side of his leg says, you have sinned. When the, the, the bars on his window say, you've sinned. The, the bell that goes off to, to, to call him to eat breakfast, it says, you have sinned. He remembers in his worst nightmares the gavel coming down on the judge's bench and it says, you've sinned. Guilty. Isn't that what it says? But listen, you can preach the same sermon in a civic organization and you rarely see anyone saved. Why is that? Well, it's because the guy who gets up and puts on his Brooks Brothers suit and then goes out and climbs into his BMW after walking out of a $400,000 house and then drives to his job that pays $200,000 a year, it is hard to convince that man that there is no good in him. It's hard for him to really believe that he's a real stinker. Now, he may have done some real stinker things. He'll admit that. But, I mean, he, he may be married and, and have a woman on the side. But, well, how bad is that? It's not like I killed somebody. You see, the, the real issue here is whether we believe about ourselves that apart from the grace of God, I am no different than the worst murderer, thief, or harlot in the world. Uh, until that nice, sweet, little gray-haired grandma in the garden club can, can say to herself, can really look in the mirror and say to herself, apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, I'm no different than, the, than, the, than, the, than a hooker on the street corner. I'm no different. Saved, but, but saved from what? Saved from the depravity of her own heart. Now, there are two words that are used here. The first word is corrupt. Look at verse 3. Every one of them has, has turned aside. They are altogether corrupt. There, there is no one who does good. No, not even one. The word used here means, so, uh, uh, means sour, or it means spoiled or, or rancid. It, it's, it's the same idea that is used in respect to the wine or the, the vinegar that was raised up to the, uh, on the sponge to the lips of Jesus on the cross. He cried, I thirst. And the last thing, to, to, the last thing to, to touch his lips, the last drop that touched his lips seemed as if it must have been the last dregs of our sour humanity for which he died. 
Here, we said, drink this. And it was thrust into his mouth on the point of a spear that killed him. You see, on, on the cross, we finally had our way, didn't we? we? We put sour humanity to his lips and we nailed God to a tree. Second word I want you to see is, is the word fear. Look, look at verse 5. They were in fear where there was nothing to fear. For God has scattered the bones of him who, who, who camps against you. L look at that. They were in fear where there was nothing to fear. The man who, who lives and, and dies apart from God exists in, in the hell of an outraged cons conscience. Intellectually speaking, in the natural, who should have been more afraid? John the Baptist or King Herod? Well, in, in the natural, we would say that John the Baptist should have been more afraid because he was a, a, a poor man. He had no wealth. He had no power. But Herod, on the other hand, he was powerful. He was wealthy. He should have nothing to fear. However, it was John the Baptist who, who died without fear while they severed his, his head from his body in the basement of a prison house. And, and at the same time, then Herod was the one who began to walk the castle in satanic madness, afraid that Jesus was somehow John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead who was coming to get him. Herod was afraid without reason. He had an army. He had a nation uh, at his back. And what was he afraid of? He was afraid of a dead man's headless corpse. Nebuchadnezzar. He threw Daniel into the lion's den. And Daniel made pillows out of the, out of the lions. Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, he walked the floor, the floor all night in fear. He was the first one to arrive at the mouth of the, of the lion's den in the morning uh, after Daniel spent the night in there. Daniel had, had a full night's sleep, un, unafraid, completely unafraid because he said there is a God. Nebuchadnezzar spent the night in fear where there was nothing for, for him to be afraid of because there were no lions in his room. Cain killed his brother Abel. When God banished him, what was the first thing he said? He said, I'm afraid for, for now surely they will kill me. See, there is a, a hell of an outraged conscience, and a conscience that has, has uh, scra been scraped bare by an, a, an action of sin that is the result of functional atheism makes a person afraid. There is no confidence. There is no steadfastness. There is no joy in God's word. There is no faith in God's promises. The, the man with hidden sin, uh, uh, his secret sin, has almost no faith in the promises of God. However, the man who has laid his soul bare to God, who, who has said, Lord, I know you know everything. You see me. You, you see everything that I say, everything that I do, everything, all that I am and all that I have. And he just throws that open to God and, and he receives the saving grace of Jesus Christ and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That man knows a confidence. He's standing on the promises of God in the face of a, of a lion's den, in, in the face of a roaring lion, in the, in the face of a superheated furnace, whatever it is, and he knows a confidence, a faith in God. There's confidence that is born of being open with God. I know God and He knows me. However, the functional atheist lives in fear because there's that hidden thing that separates him from God. You know, some years ago, a man went to a pastor and told him about a hidden sin that he feared telling, about, telling his wife about. He, he had not been involved in an, an affair, but he had uh, an uh, emotional entanglement with a woman. There had been no sexual involvement, but there was sort of this obsession and uh, finally, he, he broke it off and got out of it, and, and he, he had been away from it for, for a couple of years, but it just kind of still just hung in the air. It was, it was there. He was fearful about going to his wife with it, and, and he just looked at his pastor, and he said, I can't stand this any longer. He said, every time, I, I, he said, I've been past this for two years, and every time the phone rings, that my first thought is, oh God, it's her. 
He said, every time we're walking together in a public place, in a mall or someplace like that, I, and I see somebody from behind that, that resembles her, I, I, I'm, just, I, I'm, I'm just taken, I'm just filled with fear. My whole being is filled, filled with fear. And he said, There's this, I just tremble in my innermost being because I just know that she's going to turn around and say, I want to say something to you. And he said, I can't live like this any longer. You know, we have the same relationship with God when we try to bury sin. When God convicts us of sin, it's not because he's angry with us. It's not because he doesn't like us. He does it because he wants to deliver us from the fear that is the result of functional atheism. Look at that last verse, verse 6. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God brings back the captivity of his people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Oh, that moment when our faith will be sight. I have never seen Jesus. I've never seen him. Nevertheless, I know this. In my heart of hearts, I know that Jesus is Lord. I know that he is Lord. And, and I, I know the confidence that comes from that. Now, I also have known the fear and the, the trembling and the hatred and the self-loathing that comes from hidden sin and from deception and hypocrisy. But I know the unburdened soul. I know the unfettered joy of a conscience that is clean before God. And you know what? There is a fixed gulf between the two that is as wide as eternity. You know, I have tasted the deliverance that came out of Zion. And I cannot go back again. It is sweet and it is much to be desired. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Yet God will appear. And those whom the world calls fools, we have said there is a God. And the deliverance of his people shall come. Won't it be wonderful when we rise to meet him in the air? All of us fools. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the world around us sees us as fools. Lord, they think that we have believed in a myth, but God, we see the empty tomb and we rejoice. And God, I pray that you would help us all, Lord, because we do not want to live as functional atheists. We don't want to live our lives as if there is no God. Lord, if there's anyone watching this that is living with some sort of secret hidden sin, I pray that in, in Jesus' name that they won't live in denial anymore, but they will deal with it. They will confess before you. They will go to whoever they need to go through and make things right. And God, that the result of that will be that unfettered joy the, uh, of an unburdened soul, of a conscience that is clean before you. And God, I pray that in Jesus' name you would help us to walk in that confidence, to walk in that faith, knowing that our hearts are right before you. And we give you praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.